Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist, and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiaz. Tonight's show is dedicated to a discussion and tribute to the life and transcendental basketball career of the late Kobe Bryant. We are five days away from what would have been Kobe's 42nd birthday had he, along with his daughter Gianna and seven other people, had not been killed tragically in a helicopter crash on January 26th of this year. Joining me in this tribute and discussion is a man well qualified to discuss Kobe Bryant's life and career, internationally renowned sports author and Kobe Bryant biographer, Roland Lazenby. If there are a wing in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame reserved for basketball writers, Mr. Lazenby would and should be an inductee in very high standing. Roland has written more than 60 books covering NBA and college basketball and football. In 2014, Roland released his epic biography of Michael Jordan titled Michael Jordan, The Life, which instantly became and remains an international bestseller. Two years later, Roland followed up his magnum opus with another magnum opus, Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant, which too has become an international bestseller. Roland, had Kobe's and his daughter Gianna's life had not been cut short. What sort of future path was Kobe embarking on before the accident? What did he envision his life being after his NBA career ended? Well, you know, um, he had already won an Oscar. He had long planned for his retirement, buying some media companies uh, with thoughts toward book publishing, marketing, he sort of wanted to let his mind run. He had had all of those thoughts as a teenager, including music, and um, it, he came to the reality uh, pretty quickly that he, he had to be basketball all the time to reach his goals. And so um, he, he moved away from those things, but he never gave them up, and they were part of it. And, uh, I think he would have con continued to explore them in major ways. He uh, invested heavily in that. Roland, where were you and what were you doing when you first heard the tragic news of his death? Well, you know, it was strange. I, uh, my Kobe book is 600 pages and I really uh, had not looked at it much. Since it came out, it, it you know came out in October of 2016, and I had had a lot of other things to do in the wake of it. And then I started a Magic Johnson book, but that Sunday morning, uh, you know, I was just sort of looking back at the Kobe book and thinking about the Magic book. I picked it up and read the first 30 pages and set it down and got a phone call that he was gone. Jeez. So I was um, like everyone else. I And it wasn't five minutes later that I, I got the first media request. And uh, that went on. I, I ended up doing something like 23 uh, interviews in the next 24 hours. It was, yeah. it was crazy. Excuse me. It was 43 interviews in a 24-hour period. Man. It was ridiculous. Oh, I know. It was, it was, I mean, I, I just, it was so seismic. I mean, it was just uh, for days. I mean, I had not, I can't imagine another athlete. I mean, you know, 
or that uh, that type of extensive mourning, you know, uh, you know, in the aftermath and all of that. After when when you were working on Showboat, did Kobe in any way grant you access or cooperation when you were doing the bio? Bio and after its release, did you get any sort of feedback from Kobe himself? Never. Ooh. He uh, and I, you know, Kobe. I did a, an earlier book on Kobe, and I also was the field producer for a, a documentary from Intersport TV of Chicago that ran on 450 stations nationwide back in 2002. And Kobe, you know, gave me tremendous help for that. Uh, sat down for a, a, a long interview as did a number of, of Lakers figures. But, um, you know, he'd been through a lot by then. And I, I just think uh, he wanted control of his own projects. Uh, biographies are difficult. They are, uh, you know, the full-length independent look at somebody is really not something that um, NBA stars or major stars of any kind are are often willing to uh, get involved in. It's, uh, you know, they they prepare to control, uh, they prefer to control their own narratives. Mm. And I understand that. I, I don't get upset. By the fact they don't. The good thing is, uh, when I do these, I have so many people who cooperate and take the time to relay their experiences. And that was true of the Kobe book, just as it was true of the Michael Jordan book I did. And it's certainly been true of the Magic Johnson book I'm writing right now. When writing Showboat, what was the most fascinating, obscure fact you discovered about him? Um, it was sort of a cumulative set of facts. Uh, I, I really spent a lot of time with Sonny Vaccaro, who was the guy with Adidas who basically discovered Kobe and decided to try to make him the next Jordan. It was Vaccaro that got Adidas to pay him to turn pro out of high school. And uh, there were all these facts that were misinterpreted at the time about Kobe. It it was perceived that uh, he was pulling strings and his family was pulling strings to uh, get him to the Lakers and that all this sort of spoiled activity was going on for him, this spoiling activity. Mm. And the Bryants had no idea that there was going to be a deal worked out with the Lakers until the night of the draft. They, they weren't involved. It wasn't something Kobe requested. Uh, it was the fact that um, um, Jerry West was very close with Kobe's then agent, Arn Tellum. And Arn got him a a trial with Jerry West, and of course everyone may recall that Kobe aced that trial. It was actually a series of, of trials, but the the main one, Jerry West watched him for a while and said, "I don't need to see anymore." <laughs> and um, it, it was not Kobe's big endeavor. He would have played anywhere. He, uh, truth be known. In the spring of his senior year, his parents badly needed money. 
Mm. And that was not known at the time. And Sonny Vaccaro recalled clearly Kobe signing that Adidas contract and asking him, Mr. Vaccaro, if, if I sign this contract, is there any way that my parents can have this money and I can go play college ball? And, uh, you know, there was a reason Kobe would ride over to UCLA's campus and sit in his car and watch the kids coming and going. He ended up being for the first, I don't know, four years, three or four years, he ended up being thoroughly miserable in pro basketball. And he, he, he had a lot of bravado. He, he was, he was not wearing this stuff on his sleeve. And he never once tried to, uh, to speak up and say, Oh no, you guys got it all wrong. Uh, this is not what, what you think is has happened is not how it happened. He never once bothered with that. He just did his talk, all of his talking on the floor. Okay. But I, I, I think he, I, I think he was greatly misunderstood by all of us in the media at that time. Mm. What made Kobe the glorious and magnificent basketball player he became? What was the secret to his greatness? He never cheated the game. Um, he was always about the maximum effort to the point, and, and as a young player, that really worked against him because he annoyed the living crap out of people. You know, when he went into the NBA, it was a man's game. There weren't any uh, high school kids hanging around, and uh, but Kobe proceeded to just drive the, the Lakers nuts with with it, and he put tremendous pressure on them with the way he played in practice. I was speaking uh, years ago to uh, a high school uh, class, an auditorium, and uh, uh, full of kids, uh, and and I called uh, I called on a young lady in the front row, and I asked her if she had an afternoon job. And she said, "Yeah, I work at the grocery store." She was a senior. She was about Kobe's age when he entered the NBA. And I said, well, when you go to the grocery store this afternoon, you tell everybody that you plan on being the top executive in the entire grocery store chain in five years. And you tell them that they're not working hard enough. <laughs> and they need to practice their stocking, their sh sh uh, stocking the shelves. They need to practice on the you know, the checkout line, and, and they need, all need to stay up to work and do all of this practice. And I asked her, I said, what would your older coworkers think if you came in and did that? Mm. And she said, obviously, they'd think I'm nuts. Wow. I said, well, that was Kobe Bryant. Wow. Roland, Kobe and Phil Jackson had a highly complex and sometimes imperfect relationship. There was even a brief time when Phil Jackson briefly considered trading Kobe. Did the relationship... Oh, he wanted to trade him. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Did the relationship eventually evolve into a mutual understanding and respect, or did it always remain imperfect to the very end? Oh, no, I think it evolved. I think Phil returning to the Lakers. It, it was very broken when he left... Um, Tex Winter was my dear friend. I was rebounding free throws for Kobe 
in the forum in 1999. I, I had been writing about the Bulls. Of course, Tex Winter was the triangle coach for Phil Jackson with the Bulls and, and coach Michael forever. And, and Kobe is this lost and lonely kid. The Spurs are whacking the Lakers in the 99 playoffs. And everybody's gone, and he's practicing missing free throws. You know, for end-of-game situation, he's there just practicing the perfect miss. And so he's talking with me, and he said, you know, I've always dreamed that Tex Winter would be my coach. And Tex and I were very close. I about fell over when he said that. And I said, well, I know Tex real well, and I'm going to get him to call you. And, of course, that was a stupid thing for me to promise because Tex was an assistant coach with the Bulls. Mm. And it, but, but Tex called it, and that raised eyebrows. You know, what, what's Tex doing? And Tex uh, told him he'd watched a lot of tape of him, and he didn't think all the problems that uh, he was having were Kobe's fault. Tex became Kobe's great protector, not just his mentor and Yoda, as Kobe called him, but he came as, became his great protector against Phil. Mm-hmm. The other guy that jumped in there and protected Kobe against Phil, because Phil could really be a, a piece of work, was uh, another guy I introduced to uh, Kobe before Lakers came down in Houston. This was George Mumford, who was the mindfulness expert and, and psychologist that worked with the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, he, he ended up, George Mumford went to work for the Lakers. And he too was trying to protect Kobe against sort of this, this intense dislike, uh, almost it seemed like that Phil had for Kobe. Phil, uh, Phil was very big on the hierarchy of the team. Mm. And, and he wanted, uh, he obviously wanted Shaquille O'Neal at the top of that hierarchy. That's, that's sort of the way coaches thought in that period. Um, and Phil was really good at establishing the hierarchy, but Kobe was born to challenge it. And, of course, he did. But uh, Kobe was a good pilgrim in terms of the triangle. It was never easy for guys like Kobe or MJ. As Tex Winter would often say, you know, it was just sort of like um, riding a whirlwind on game nights. You just never knew when they were going to get out of it, you know, take it on their own and say the offense be damned. It, it was always a sort of high-wire act, as Tex would describe it to me. And they both were tremendous. You know, the, the triangle was just, basically an old college offense that allowed the Bulls and then the Lakers to control tempo. You know, they can't play it in the NBA today. The NBA changed the rules. Mm-hmm. I think all the coaches got tired of losing to the triangle. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they cut the timeline down to eight seconds. And the triangle is a two-guard front. It needs the full 10 seconds to to get the ball up the floor. And then they got rid of the reset. They cut the reset down to 14 seconds on an offensive rebound. And um, 
the guy had won 24 um, championships with the Triangle in the uh, Philippines in, in their top league. Yeah. He had to stop using it for those same reasons. Yeah. Uh, basically, the Triangle was legislated out of the game. You have to play with pace today. You cannot do anything else. What was Kobe the man like? How okay? You said you you were doing re when he was very young is at the very beginning. So how many times did you meet and interview him in person? What was the man like? Oh, I, I spent a lot of time with him. From um, I, I spent time with him his first season. I was doing another project on all the young players coming in the league, and uh, you know. I, I probably interviewed him five times that season, including sitting with him for a long time in the locker room at the All-Star game before he went out and won the slam dunk contest, just the two of us. And then I just I, I just started spending time with him. Uh, all of the, um, uh, a, a whole lot of the 97, 98 season. And then, just about all of the 99 season. I was in LA all the time and I, it got to where he would, he had given me his password to call him at his hotel. Mm -hmm. And I would call and we would have these talks. He was very unhappy, mm -hmm. very miserable in those days. He didn't think the Lakers had an organized offense. And, you know, there was a lot of up and down with his, uh, with his early years with the Lakers. Now, you talked about in the beginning, he was unhappy. Let's go to the end now. Do you believe at the end of his career, did he achieve a sense of happiness? Was he content with his legacy? In other words, what he gave to the game, what he gave to the Lakers, what he gave to the basketball world. Do you believe he was content when he finally retired for the last, for in 2016? You know, Kobe changed a lot over his career. I, I do think he found uh, some acceptance. I don't think he wanted to. I don't think he he ever believed that Michael Jordan was better. I, he just set out uh, to to do that. I, I and Tex Winter, who spent hours and hours with Kobe. He explained to me, you know, there was some, some pretty big irony. He he went to college directly right out of high school. Mm -hmm. And when Tex would come, Tex coached Michael Jordan longer than anyone. Mm -hmm. And when Tex would compare the two, he said, you know, Michael played three years in that system offense, that tightly controlled system at, at North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, Bill Guthridge was Dean Smith's top assistant in North Carolina, and Bill Guthridge was Tex Winter's point guard at Kansas State, and then his assistant coach for eight years. Wow. And so Bill Guthridge was fully steeped in the triangle, which is obviously another system offense. But, you know, uh, Tex always thought that one of the huge differences between Michael and Kobe was that Michael went to college and had the benefit of that time <clears throat> playing for Dean Smith, learning to play in a system. 
and that Kobe never had any of that. And the irony Tex felt was that that was the difference. The fact that he went directly to the pros that if, if Kobe had actually played some college ball and matured a little bit, he probably wouldn't have been at such odds with his teammates mm. and ended up so walled off and aloof. And, uh, you know, it, it was always difficult for Kobe. Uh, certainly, you could argue that, that his timeline was, you know, nobody worked harder. And then he got into all this conflict and basically ruined his career. He, he, you know, he couldn't get along with Phil Jackson or with Shaq. Uh, he, he was pushing Jerry Buss, who owned the Lakers, just adored Kobe, but Kobe had pushed his patience and then he got charged with sexual assault. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think the, the way I measure Kobe is that that would have destroyed just about anyone else, all of those things combined. But he had the will and the strength of character to, to fight his way back and, to, you know, to, to come to lord over the game again there. Uh, he was the MVP in 2008. You know, um, they won two championships in nine and ten. He had to have a lot of help to get that, that that victory against the Celtics in Game 7 in 2010. But um, he, he persevered. He, he, was, um, he never cheated the fans. He never cheated the game. And that's why they loved him dearly. Yes. In Bill Simmons' book, The Book of Basketball, he ranked Kobe as the eighth greatest basketball player of all time. Do you agree with that ranking, or do you believe Kobe should be ranked higher? Um, you know, I, I really don't rank players. Mm. I, maybe it's a cop-out, but I, uh, I, I just think there's such limits to it. I'm a writer. I really do. I mean, I really work my butt off on these biographies, but I, I really just don't feel it's right for me to be sitting back in a chair pronouncing one guy eight and one guy seven. Yeah. Kobe himself addressed it this way. He said, I got a seat at the table. I got a voice in the conversation. And so if, if it's a big table, there are eight seated there. But, you know, the game has changed so much over the years, constantly. And the changes we have now are, 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 it's almost not the same game. But even before that, it changed so much over the years. It's it's really hard to uh, evaluate each of these guys. What Bill Russell did is amazing. But I would say Kobe's in the top eight easily. I just don't work. I don't go around doing that. Now that's saying a lot, but Kobe did a lot. Yeah. By God, he did. Last question, Roland. 
considering what has happened in America after Kobe's death with nationwide protests following the wake of George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor, and all the other tragic deaths of African-Americans at the hands of white policemen, if Kobe had not died, do you could you have seen Kobe lending his name, his moral and financial support, and his prestige to the ongoing struggle like LeBron James and other NBA stars are doing right here and now with the restart of NBA playing? Could you have seen Kobe doing that? Um, I think so. Kobe was, um, I would say Kobe was an international brother. He, he uh, really was raised as a child of wealth and advantage. And uh, he would come back to play in the, in the uh, various summer leagues at Philadelphia where his family was from. He, he spent a lot of his youth growing up in, in Europe where his father played basketball. And it was a tough adjustment. You know, those guys would laugh at him. Kobe had a lot of knee issues. And he would have the big knee pads on and uh, really looked almost like an alien to a lot of those guys in those, in the, you know, uh, in the very summer leagues around there, but he just competed so hard. He won them over. He cared at a, a deeper level. And that's, that's really where genius begins. Okay. Rowan, you said earlier that you're working on a bio of Magic Johnson. When can we expect its release? Well, um, I hope to have it finished by December, which means it'll come out sometime in early fall, probably, of 2021. Oh, wow. That's I'm, great. I'm working away on it. It's we've, got, we've done just about all the interviews. I've written a good portion of it, but i got a long ways to go. It's, a, it's a, an amazing story. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait. I mean, when it comes out, I want you on my show again, because I'd love to talk to you about the uh, uh, that the new bio, because, I mean, Magic was another transcendental figure, like Michael, like Kobe. That would be great. And, Roland, I want to oh, thank you. Revolutionary figure. Yeah, thank absolutely. You for having me. Yes, Roland, thank you. It's great, a great honor and a privilege, and I can't wait to have you on my show again. May God bless and keep you and your wonderful family always, and be safe. Please be safe. The same to you, Matthew. Thank you, and good night. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing renowned football author Tommy Phillips. Thank you, and good night.